listening to the Paul McGuire Report. This is Paul McGuire. We have to ask the question. I mean, all of us do. You know, I have to ask it. You have to ask it. It permeates the social community atmosphere that we live in. And, and the question that we all collide into on a daily basis, at least, is because there's such a prevailing absence of truth, literally, in every aspect of our society, in, in every dimension of our society, especially in America, there is a literally a total absence of truth. And, and there's always been an absence of truth, as long as I've been alive. But the absence of truth, uh, to use an awkward expression, the absence of truth has grown into pandemic proportions, so that people now expect the lie. They expect to be lied to. And the lie, and the bigger the lie, uh, the more easily it is to be accepted. So people expect to be lied to, and that becomes their cultural conditioning. And, you know, you don't, you don't get away from that claim. When you live in a society, now criminal societies like the mafia, like the cartels, like totalitarian dictatorships, etc., criminal societies, like secret societies, they have always been built and per perpetuate themselves on the basis of the lie or continuous lies. The lie is their normal. Even in the criminal world, the lie is the normal. In the political world today in America, it didn't used to be like that. I mean, let's not, by, let's not be naive. It was always prevalent. But now people expect politicians to lie to them. And when you expect politicians to lie to you, you're essentially giving those politicians a free license to lie, because you're saying, whether you say it outwardly or you don't verbalize it, what you're communicating to the political class, to the politicians of, of both sides, both parties, you're saying, whether you realize it or not, you're endorsing their lying, you're endorsing their corruption, you're empowering their corruption, because you're saying to them, one way or another, I expect you to lie to me. I'm not going to, if you do lie to me, no matter how bad it is, I'm probably not going to do anything because that's what I expected to begin with. Well, as subtle as a irrational leap that that is, uh, that kind of thinking is cataclysmic to, to a society and to a nation like America. And so one of the primary reasons that America is literally factually and objectively in a free fall right now, one of the primary reasons is is that we have the collective expectation we expect to be lied to. And therefore, the reaction to that is the hyper-promotion of evil. Because when you expect to be lied to, then there is no really any counter-reaction when you are lied to. Whereas, you know, 40 years ago, well, people were lied to like crazy by the political class. But it wasn't lying wasn't the new normal. So it's interesting, if you, if you were to, to construct a graph, and when you start to trace the radical transformation of the social structure of America and the, the political class, et cetera, et cetera, when you go back 50 or 60 years ago, and I don't know what the exact year or date it happened, and as 
And as minor as a, a change that this may seem, when they took the Ten Commandments out of the school systems, out of the schools, out of the, out of the public buildings, out of the universities and colleges, when they, they don't even have the Ten Commandments posted in most churches, for crying out loud. In fact, I can't remember, I can't remember going into a church in, for like decades where I ever recall seeing the Ten Commandments prominently posted or listed or, or whatever, or, or put in a gold plaque or something. I can't ever remember seeing the Ten Commandments listed out in the open for people to look at. Okay, so when you allow the Ten Commandments to be removed out of society, especially the school system, even though that appears to be a minor symbolic thing, one of the things I used to talk about all the time on my other show, the Paul McGuire show, the nationally syndicated AM and FM four-hour drive time show for over 10 years. I remember uh, when, when we invaded uh, Iraq. Now, what I, what I was saying wasn't an endorsement or it wasn't a, a non-endorsement. It's not even a word of the war in Iraq. It was simply an observation. And I remember, and I talked about it on the air, I remember when the people of Iraq were rallying around these giant statues of Saddam Hussein. And everywhere you went in Iraq, because it was televised, you could see it. Everywhere you would go in Iraq, you would see enormous billboards with the face of Saddam Hussein. You would see statues. His, Saddam Hussein's face was everywhere. His body was everywhere. He was establishing his psychological control over the people by, by placing statue, giant statues of himself. So I remember, and you probably do too, I remember the people gathering around after the U.S. invaded Iraq. And the people of Iraq got ropes and they threw them, they kind of lassoed them around these giant statues of Saddam Hussein. And then they would pulled down either in pieces or in one fell swoop, they would collapse the statues of Saddam Hussein, which would then fall on the dirt or the pavement and start to break apart, like the arms would fall off, the head would be beheaded, statue, uh, and, and it would be broken up. And I remember, I remember talking about that over the air, and I remember that um, most of the people supported me in, in my views, but there were some people who didn't like what. I, oh no, it's not that they didn't really like what I what I said. They they felt I was I was making. They felt that the toppling of the statues of Saddam Hussein was irrelevant and it didn't have any real meaning. And so, Paul, why are you making a big deal about this? And you know, I politely corrected them over the air, and I did it on a. On a relatively regular basis because I found I had to keep explaining the same principle uh, to, to uh, a significant, not, I don't know, significant, to a percentage of the audience that still didn't get it. Because when you're doing drive-time radio, you're not always getting the same, I mean, in part, you're getting the same audience day after day, people who are doing their commuting and stuff. But because in California and in all the other markets that we, we broadcasted in, People would get off at different times. You don't always get off at 5 o'clock. Sometimes people would get off at 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock or whatever. 
which means there, there would be segments of the program that they never heard before. So if I brought it up or a caller brought it up, I'd have to address it again because there were a lot of people listening which didn't catch the previous programs or people who only traveled on the freeways uh, on particular days or every other week or whatever. <clears throat> and so I had to deal with this constantly. So how I dealt with it was to simply explain the fact that the pulling down of the giant statues of Saddam Hussein was a very important act, and that we had to recognize, as the military does, as the, the dictators in communist regimes, they understand this principle, uh, as military generals understand this principle, uh, I had to explain the fact that part of warfare, a significant part of warfare, perhaps the most important part of warfare, is, is psychological warfare, or PSYOPs, and that I kept stressing over and over again, as I do on this program, as I explain in greater detail in my books at paulmcguire.us, I explain that symbols, you can never underestimate the power of symbols to impact, shape, and program the human mind. And Americans don't have this knowledge because they, they didn't get it in their educational system. Symbols are critically important because symbols are really archetypical anchors which exist in the physical world in the form of a painting or a poster or a slogan or uh, a statue of a human being or a statue of a, a phoenix or something. And the phoenix, of course, represents something else. It will, will often in today's world, a phoenix. You see a statue or a, somebody wearing an emblem on their uh, dress or their uh, suit of a phoenix or a statue of a phoenix. The, the root of that is the phoenix is an occult legendary bird. So, so, so the symbol you're looking at of a phoenix is literally a link to the occult society or the occult powers behind the phoenix, the legendary phoenix which, according to occult legends, is burned up, and then, in like a counterfeit resurrection, it resurrects from the ashes, the phoenix, of being burned up and rises again, like a counterfeit Christ. So when you look into the typology of what the phoenix represents as a symbol, the phoenix specifically represents, it can represent either the New World Order, or it can represent the old order of the ages. So, the phoenix uh, is a legendary allegory and symbol of the old order being burned up through revolution and chaos, and then the phoenix dies. In the legend of the phoenix, the phoenix dies, representing the death of the old order. But then, the phoenix rises from the ashes and is resurrected, which represents an occultic principle once again. The occultic principle is the phoenix dies, representing the old order. Phoenix is burnt up, representing the chaos and the chaos of destruction of the old order. But then the phoenix uh, resurrects from the ashes, it rises from the dead as 
a, as a form of the new world order. So the phoenix is a symbol of the occult principle and power of using the old order, the death of the old order, to bring about, after it's burned up, to, to bring about the resurrection of the new world order. So the phoenix represents not only the old order, order out of chaos, and it represents the new world order. So when you see big-time politicians wearing a phoenix on their lapels of their suits or on their dresses or whatever, I can, I can pretty much tell you that that politician, whether they know it or not, they're, they're connected to some kind of a cult secret society. So symbols are important. They've always been important. That's why in all warfare, you notice that when one army or one group of peoples or one nation conquers another nation, going back thousands and thousands of years, inevitably the conquering nation will tear down the flag, will tear down any of the statues or symbols that represents or authenticate the power of the nation or the dictator or the king or the leader that they just conquered. Part of the act of conquest is not just the military subjugation of a given people or a ruler. In order for that subjugation to be complete, there has to be the removal of any or all symbols which would suggest, even on a symbolic level, that that conquered ruler or that conquered nation is still independent and still in power. So when a military fully does its job throughout history, it has to remove the flags of the other nation, the statues and the symbols of the other nation. And that can include burning down the statues, burning down the buildings, tearing down the flags, or in many cases, destroying and ripping up any paintings, any giant posters of the, of the dictator, and of course, toppling statues of the dictator, like Saddam Hussein in the public square. So my, my message to certain people in the audience was simply this, don't minimize the power of symbols. The military, people who understand the spiritual dynamic of warfare and psyops, etc., they all, throughout human history, understand the critical importance of symbols. And therefore, <clears throat> it was imperative that the people of Iran, uh, that they, had to, they had to rise up and topple the statues of Saddam Hussein. And this was broadcast all around the world through American television. And you saw the people of Iraq struggling with the ropes to, to topple and pull down the giant statues of Saddam Hussein, which then cracked apart to whatever degree as they collapsed into the streets. This is a symbolic declaration that the overthrow has been completed and that there is new rulership. In this case, the, the message was, and you can debate whether it's true or not, but the message was that the people of, of Iran have now taken control and they no longer are going to be ruled by Saddam Hussein, a dictator. Uh, and this has been repeated over and over and over again here in the United States, all across the world. Okay, I mean, the pulling down of one flag, one symbol, and the, the putting up of another flag or another symbol or another statue. This is part of, the, of, of psychological warfare. And to the intelligent Christian, it is a necessary—the intelligent Christian versus the ignorant Christian the intelligent Christian understands the critical key 
and essential role that the tearing down of symbols represents in warfare and a transformation of power. Okay, now we've just begun. We just put our toe in the in the edge of the water, and we're going to go in deeper. But we're not going to go deeper into the water to drown ourselves like a bunch of idiots. We're going to go deep in, into the water where we will eventually, and I'm speaking metaphorically, where we will eventually transcend the physical limitations of water. Again, I'm speaking metaphorically, or you could say symbolically. We will transcend the physical limitations of water, and we will morph into a place where we learn how to together walk on the water, as Jesus demonstrated it to us that we can do and commanded us to do. So we're going to go through a transformation, not all in one program. It's been a long-term transformation where the unspoken goal is to transcend the physical limitations of a fallen world, not through mysticism, not through temporary insanity, not through illusion or delusion, but through the activation of the supernatural power of God by faith and appropriating by faith, which is a way of turning the power switch on, and by appropriating by faith the same power that resurrected Jesus Christ into the dead, we're supposed to appropriate that same power in our lives. Now, when we learn how to walk on the water, this can be viewed as simply walking on the surface of a lake, the ocean, or whatever. Although I really haven't seen anybody do that. But it could also represent, and I think personally this is probably the more important application, it could also represent uh, a supernatural transcendence over any physical dimension reality which has previously confined or imprisoned the children of God. And so it could also rent, it could also represent whenever God's people uh, pray to God, put their faith in God's word, and then inevitably, because of their obedience, they are able to transcend or overcome natural earthly human limitations. And they're able to do the impossible, impossible because Jesus Christ said, all, if, if Jesus Christ said all things are possible, we have a choice to take that literally, or we have the choice to diminish the totality of what he said. What he said was very clear. He said all things. That means everything is possible to believers when they believe. So there's no limitations. But to be honest, we really don't see that very much, do we, if at all. If at all. So, so in a reaction to not seeing that at all, we have a choice. We can say, and by the way, the first choice I'm going to give you is the wrong choice. So you should hear a buzzer going off, you know. Ah. First choice is we respond to the fact that we have not seen people physically walk on the water. And so we come to the erroneous conclusion that Christ must have meant something else when he said that, eh, or that God's word isn't true, eh, or that God's word doesn't really mean what it's, it says. Eh. Those are all answers that attack the word of God 
and they suggest that God is a liar, and they are a surrender of the supernatural aspects of Christ's divinity to the physical limitations of a materialistic worldview, which which states erroneously that the only thing that can be real is that which we can perceive with our physical senses. And by the way, that scientific that that what I just said to you has been the scientific principle for hundreds and hundreds of years. But guess what, folks? The scientific community within its own culture has refuted itself the the principle of science, which which has stated for so many years, the only thing that is true is that which what we can see or feel or touch in, in the physical dimensions universe or what we can measure in the physical dimension universe. And then if we can't see it or observe it with our senses, and, and that the only real reality is that is that reality that we can perceive with our physical senses, like seeing, smelling, hearing, etc. Well, again, guess what, folks? That belief system has been rejected internally uh, among a, a, a among the larger percentage of scientists alive today. They no longer adhere to that mythology. Why? Because science, specifically quantum physics, quantum mechanics, has discovered that we live in a world that consists of not just the dimensions we can see and hear and smell and taste. In other words, the reality that really is, is not just the reality that we can perceive with our physical dimension senses. That's over. Because It's over because they discovered through quantum physics that there are approximately 11 to 13 different dimensions. So those 11 to 13 dimensions include the physical dimension uh, realities which we can perceive with our senses like taste and touch and seeing. Okay, Those are still there, but then you have to add to them in order to get a total of 11 to 13 different dimensions, you have to add to the physical dimension senses many, many other dimensions of senses, which scientists now believe exist, but they are not observable through your eyes, your seeing, your touching, your tasting, and your smelling. So the traditional modality of, of restricting reality to just physical dimension senses it's over. It's over. And so quantum physicists understand, and many other groups of scientists understand, that our reality is a multidimensional reality. So quantum physics does not rule over the authority of the Word of God. It's nice to know that's, that, that, at least in part, science is beginning to catch up with a biblical worldview. But the Bible is true, whether or not science happens to endorse it or not. The Bible has been telling us since the book of Genesis that there are more dimensions than than simply the dimensions we can perceive with our physical senses. The Bible has been talking about unseen dimensions for thousands of years. The Bible has historical account after historical account of all kinds of things 
that are real and historically valid that have occurred in dimensions that cannot be perceived with our physical senses. And the Bible uses different names for them, like the invisible realm, the spiritual realm, the spiritual world. So whether we're talking about the chariots of fire and the angelic armies that uh, that appear, that, that literally appear out of another dimension. So, so at one moment, they, they are very much existing in an invisible realm or an unseen dimension. Chariots of fire are there. The angelic armies are there. But they cannot be perceived. They cannot be seen with your physical senses. And, and as such, they are, they're there, but they're invisible. Nobody can see them. And Elijah's servant is, is, Elijah, of course, is the prophet. Elijah's servant is freaking out because he cannot see the existence of the angelic armies. He cannot see the, the existence of the chariots of fire. He's simply assessing his situation and his predicament through his senses, like what he can see and hear and taste and smell. And so he has reduced the validity of what is real to only those dimensions that can be perceived with your physical senses. And so he freaks out, and he panics, because what he sees with his physical senses is the massive Syrian army coming down upon them, and they have every intention of slaughtering uh, the physical armies of God. And Elijah's servant figures he's doomed. So Elijah, the prophet, who has the supernatural power of God and has regularly seen and regularly visited <clears throat> the invisible realm, the spiritual world, uh, cries out to God in this crisis. And, and he cries out to God and says something to the effect of, Lord, Open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And then supernaturally, God Almighty opens the eyes <clears throat> of his servant, and all of a sudden he can see. And by that, that means all of a sudden Elijah's servant can see into the invisible realm and the spiritual world. And so all of a sudden, those things that were hidden. He now has the ability to see. They, they're no longer hidden. They, are, they have become manifest in the physical reality that, that he and the armies of God exist in. And so the moment he sees into the invisible realm, he's overcome with emotion and hope and faith, and, and, he, and he shouts out as loud as he can, Behold! He shouts out these words that echo throughout the armies of God and the children of Israel. And he shouts out these words which also echo throughout the valley area that all the armies of Syria are, are stationed in. So they can hear, the armies of Syria can hear what Elijah's servant is shouting at the top of his lungs. And he's shouting out the words. Behold, the hills are filled with chariots of fire, 
and those that be with us are, are more than are with them. And supernaturally, Elijah's servant has now been given the ability to see into another dimension, the invisible realm, the spiritual world, and it transforms his his analysis of the danger in the situation. And he, he shouts out those words again, Behold, the hills are filled with chariots of fire, and those that be with us are more than be with them. And so he's referring to the, the existence, the, the, the fact that these chariots of fire have come out of another unseen dimension, and these chariots of fire, which are truly the supernatural chariots of God, they represent, now listen to the words I'm using, because Christians are afraid of using words that, that in their application and understanding are thoroughly biblical worldviews and don't contradict whatsoever with the biblical worldview. So I would exhort you not to dive off the deep end in a swimming pool without water, but understand that if you're correctly uh, assessing or understanding or whatever, a biblical reality that's coming true before your very eyes, you have the right to quantify it, to categorize it for exactly what it is. And it's not a delusion. It's not a great apostasy. It's a greater reality. So all of a sudden, Elijah's servant sees these chariots of fire, which represent the technology of God. You say, well, how can you say that? I can say that because, guess what, folks? Chariots have things like wheels. Wheel is a primitive technology that revolutionized the world. Chariots have spokes in their wheels, a hub in the center of their wheels and spokes. Chariots have all kinds of, of simple technologies. And in addition to that, chariots are designed to have uh, trained charioteers or soldiers stand in them and hold the reins uh, of the horses, which are going to pull the chariots of fire at high speeds. And in fact, based on Elijah the servant's perception, he saw, the tech, he saw this technology of God, the chariots of fire. And the chariots of fire on one level look like regular chariots. And on one level, the horses look like regular horses, but they're moving at very fast speed into the, into the battlefield. But there's something different about these chariots and horses from everyday chariots and horses. These chariots of fire and the horses represent, the fire represents the fact that the chariots of fire are exploding in a dazzling supernatural golden light that is so intense that, that it, it is perceived like chariots that have been set on fire. Now, whether it was actually fire, I, I'm not so sure about that. I think it most likely was the intensification and manifestation of the glory of God from another dimension as God releases his glory through the technology of the chariots of fire. And this carries over to the horses. The horses are not mere flesh and blood horses. They are horses pulling the chariots of fire and the chari charioteers, which are Envelope in this fiery like glory of God. And so 
the chariots of fire, the horses and the charioteers, they have somehow, by the power of God, teleported themselves out of the unseen dimension into the physical dimension world, where now, because uh, the eyes of uh, uh, Elisha's servant have been supernaturally opened, he sees them. He cries out, behold, the hills are filled with chariots of fire. That means, hey, wake up, folks. That means there's lots of these chariots of fire. Talk about the technology of warfare. This is so far beyond our technology today, it's not even worth talking about it in terms of comparison. But then, the, the servant of Elijah cries out after he acknowledges the fact that the chariots of fire are here. He, he cries out, Behold, those that be with us are more than those that are with them. Well, the those that be with us represents the thousands and thousands of angelic armies. So, the angelic troops, the angelic armies, have also materialized and come out of the invisible dimension and can now be seen in the physical dimension as what they are. The angelic armies that also glow with the glory of God. And these angelic armies are composed of thousands and thousands of troops that are glowing with the brightness of fire and glowing with the brightness of the sun. So out of the invisible realm, out of the spiritual world, in a moment of crisis, when it appears that the, that the physical armies of God, when it appears that God's people are about to be slaughtered by the Syrian armies, and, and all hope uh, temporarily has left their hearts, and they're in a state of panic and a state of being freaked out of their minds. In this pivotal moment of crisis, God manifests his power, his deliverance, in a completely unexpected way. And we are told what that is through the mouth of Elijah's servant, who says, Behold, the hills are filled with chariots of fire, and those that be with us are more than be, that be with them. And that is that God is teaching you and me and the body of Christ all over planet Earth right now, all of us who happen to be alive here and now during the last days, God's Word is eternal. The truth of God's Word is eternal. Therefore, the eternal nature of God's truth is not just applicable to the time frame of Elijah, Elijah's servant, and the invasion by the Syrian armies against the, the, the physical armies of God's people. The truth that Elijah observed is not simply restricted to that time zone. Why? Because the truth and promises of God's word are everlasting and they're eternal. And so they apply. Listen to me, please. This is very simple. They apply to you and me and the supernatural body of Christ in America and the world right now. Because you and I and the supernatural body of Christ worldwide. At this very moment, we are in a repetitive cycle that indicates that we are very much in, in many respects, not totally, but in many respects, we are very much in, at this nanosecond, we are very much in 
an identical situation to the situation that the children of God faced as they stood in terror before the massive Syrian armies. And then all out of, uh, then out of the middle of nowhere, God Almighty, the only true God, God Almighty, opens the eyes of Elijah the servant, and he declares a greater reality. And that the greater reality is always the reality that God creates, not that man or the devil creates, or that man imitates, or that the devil copies. The greater reality is always created by the Creator, capital C. We'll be back with more. You need to be loaded for bear. And you know what that means. This is the Paul McGuire Report. Visit paulmcguire.us. Okay, this is Paul McGuire. What does that mean? The, 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 the seeing of the chariots of fire, the technology of God. And those that be with us are, mo- are more than those that are with them. So if we transpose that biblical truth, because God's word is eternal, to our present moment. You know, it's interesting. It's amazing. When, when, you, you know, when you are committed one way or another, whether you realize it or not, if you're committed one way or another to a theology of unbelief, <clears throat> it's amazing because, uh, you know, I taught at uh, a fully accredited biblical seminary and uh, university as a uh, professor of uh, eschatology, which is Bible prophecy, ecclesiology, which is a study of the church and uh, Israel and Bible prophecy. <clears throat> and um, the other professors all, uh, well, I shouldn't say they all, many of the other professors, and there, there, there are, were exceptions, uh, but, but many of the professors, they, they got their theology from, on one hand, you could say they were reputable uh, Christian theological institutions, okay? But I discovered that in interacting with them, whether they realized it or not, <clears throat> they picked up all kinds of secular humanist belief systems, a secular humanist worldview. And in fact, they picked up some of the uh, very dangerous theology that was originally called uh, the theology of higher criticism, which is just a fancy way of saying we're going to teach you the Bible through the lens of intense criticism. So by the time you graduate, you will no longer. I mean, the goal of the professors of the schools of theological higher criticism, which came first out of the Soviet, uh, first out of uh, communist Russia, then they went to the Frankfurt School in Frankfurt, Germany, and they they educated or indoctrinated uh, thousands of pastors and Christian leaders and ministers and people in, in, in Christian ministry. They indoctrinated them intentionally in a theology of unbelief in the Word of God. So you end up not believing uh, in a virgin birth, the miracles of Christ, a literal second coming of Christ, a literal resurrection of Christ. You don't believe in the miracles of God, etc., etc. You don't believe in the miracles of the Old Testament. You, you sit under professor after professor 
who, who most likely not, is not even born again. And this, this was going on in the 1920s in Frankfurt, Germany. I think it was 1926 to be exact. <clears throat> and so the Frankfurt School professors were secretly Marxist revolutionaries who strategically and intentionally developed a curriculum which was designed to eradicate true biblical faith and, the author- and, and a belief in the authority of God's word <clears throat> so that secular humanism, Marxism, and communism could replace it. Now, you say, well, that was in 1926. Well, don't be so naive. That movement, that theological movement, has uh, changed names uh, many times over the decades. <clears throat> but the movement, the, the theological schools of higher criticism, that movement is still alive and well. And it is designed specifically to eradicate from potential Christian leaders, from potential Bible-believing Christian leaders, it is intentionally designed to eradicate a genuine <clears throat> biblical faith in God and the authority of God's Word. So originally, these schools of theological higher criticism in Frankfurt, Germany, and by the way, Frankfurt, Germany was, was where the Illuminati was birthed. Frankfurt, Germany is where and was where uh, the Rothschild Empire was ruled from. So it's a significant spiritual power center on planet Earth. So originally, this uh, theological higher criticism was called the German schools of theological higher criticism. Now, it's very, 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 I could go on for two hours saying very. It's very important that you understand exactly what this produced in Christianity and the world, and that you don't have any naivete about it or any fuzzy logic about it. I write about this, <clears throat> excuse me, in detail in my books like A Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1 and 2, um, The Greatest Battle for the Hearts and Minds of Mankind in the World, Power from on High, <clears throat> and many of my other books available at a discount at paulmcguire.us. So here is, is, is the critical thing, and no pun intended, because we're dealing with what's called critical theory. So originally, these schools, this uh, educational curriculum was called, and, and the, and the uh, universities and seminaries that were created were called the German schools of theological higher criticism. So look at what happened in history when the German schools of theological higher criticism began to indoctrinate, or educate, but it was really indoctrinate, thousands of aspiring uh, men and women who wanted to learn the Bible and to learn the Bible more deeply. What it did is it, it, it robbed their faith. It robbed their belief of anything supernatural. It eroded their uh, uh, convictions and the authority of God's Word. And so by the time you graduated or spent time in the German schools of theological higher criticism, you ended up with with a minus or a deficit in spiritual power and biblical understanding, because that program literally rendered you useless in fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations, and engaging in the great last days spiritual war for the hearts and souls of mankind. It rendered you completely impotent, and it was game over. Now, 
look at that the same historical time period, and I explain it to you in detail in books like Power from On High. If you, do, if you talk to a pastor that doesn't know this, then they don't know anything. And what the heck are you going to a church where the pastor doesn't know anything? No, I know you excuse it because you like to worship. I know, yeah, you excuse it because that's where your friends go. Well, wait till you stand before Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, and he asks you why there wasn't more fruit, why you didn't win more souls, why, why, why you didn't, ultimately, why you didn't fulfill the plan and mission he had for you while you were on planet Earth. And you make an excuse, uh, and 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 Jesus may correct you, and he may say to you, the reason you didn't bear fruit, the reason you didn't fulfill your mission, the reason you didn't accomplish what I called you to accomplish, is that you chose to prioritize or elevate or put your own personal desires to have friends uh, to enjoy, you know, snappy contemporary worship music, you chose to to gravitate towards a preacher and Bible teachers that made you laugh, that that were entertaining, uh, but very light on the Word of God. You made all those choices, and so your life did not produce fruit. You didn't accomplish the mission that uh, I intended for you because you chose in multiple areas of your life to prioritize, uh, let's call them feel-good moments, versus becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ and studying the Word of God, understanding the Word of God, which can only happen if you're surrounding yourself with preachers and teachers and pastors who they themselves know the Word of God. They're truly born again, and they have an active, vital faith in Jesus Christ. But you cannot blame me, God, for your lack of fruitfulness because you took the shortcut. You you deliberately, whether you realized it or not, but I'm still holding you accountable, you deprived yourself of the spiritual nutrition, the spiritual truth, the spiritual fuel, which is absolutely necessary, and giving you the spiritual power to accomplish your destiny and mission here on earth. And, and, and by the way, if you think that's far-fetched, all of us, including me, all of us will be held accountable at the judgment seat of Christ for what we did and didn't do for the Lord Jesus Christ. So all those people <clears throat> who decided not to really believe the Bible and study it, they chose to gravitate towards the schools of German theological higher criticism. While, while all of their faith was being eroded, while the devil was stealing all of their spiritual power, by sowing unbelief, doubt, <clears throat> and theological higher criticism into their hearts and minds. While the Christian church was losing power daily and becoming weaker and weaker and weaker, remember a principle of science and spirituality, which is nature, as well as men and women's hearts, abhors or dislikes a vacuum. And so when human hearts are empty, of the power of God, they will seek counterfeit substitutes. When, when nations are devoid of the power of God, they will seek counterfeit substitutes. So as the church was waning or going down in power, guess what? The German Nazis and the German Nazi scientists and the German uh, scholars of theological higher criticism and the secret German occult secret societies like the Vril Society, the Thule Society, 
and all the other secret societies. Germany, at the same time that the so-called Bible-believing church <clears throat> was rapidly declining in power, uh, there was a literal occult and satanic revival going on in Nazi Germany among the military generals, Adolf Hitler, the SS, the Nazis, the people. They were, they were running to discover and practice satanic power, occult power, psychedelic drugs, rituals, communicating with spirit guides, and they were deeply involved in many very dark, satanic, and evil, and occultic practices. So at the same time the church was dwindling in power in Germany, the power of the devil, the power of the occult, was in full-fledged revival among Hitler, the Nazis, and the German people. Okay, so history repeats itself. Whenever you have a spiritual and societal condition that causes the Church of Jesus Christ to lose its power, you will discover that simultaneously there will be the raising up of counterfeit power in the forms of Satanism, witchcraft, paganism, uh, secret occult societies, and so on and so forth. This is a this is a law of nature. It's a law of spirituality. It's a law of sociology. It's been repeated over and over and over again throughout human history. So right now, the evidence, because I'm not just talking out of my hat, the evidence um, of which I am presenting to you is irrefutable. So any pastor or Christian leader or any Christian that would attempt to dismiss you if you attempted to raise these issues before them, they don't know what they're talking about. And don't don't be afraid of them. They're just filled with hot air. Because this is now repeating itself in America and Western societies. Evidence for that, documentation for that, I have in my books, like Power from on High, The Greatest Battle. Get off your tush and get them. Read. Readers are thinkers. Thinkers have power. So we know statistically, and I quote the exact statistics and their sources in my books, we know st statistically that, that some of the highest and most respected pollsters in America <clears throat> polled the, the Christian and religious world, and they determined through, through very accurate polls that the fastest growing religion or religions in America, the fastest growing religion in America was number one, paganism and witchcraft. And then the second fastest growing religion in America was, this is odd, atheism. It's, it's amazing how atheism can, can weave itself around witchcraft and uh, uh, paganism, but it does. So. Statistically, right now, the fastest growing religions and religious movements, the, the greatest number of conversions happening in America. See, this is called a reality check versus something else. Okay, the greatest, excuse me, the fastest growing religions in America are factual documenta documentation available is uh, witchcraft and paganism, which are very similar. And the second fastest growing religion in America is atheism, which is the religion that believes that there is no God and that man is God. What always happens <clears throat> when those statistics 
materialize into a society as they did in Nazi Germany is another dynamic happens simultaneously. So first we have the fastest growing religions in America are atheism and witchcraft, and the second fastest growing religion in America is atheism. When you contrast this, you discover inevitably that true biblical Christianity, which believes in God and believes in a biblical worldview, is statistically in a major freefall or a major decline in America, which means the Christian influence, the Christian impact, the shining of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the shining of the light of God's word is being pushed out of every power center in society. It's being pushed out of relationships. It's being pushed out of government and institutions and the military and economics and education. The influence of Christianity, which is the influence of truth, is being assaulted by the powers of the occult. And what will inevitably rise up to replace it, which we can see the historical examples over and over again, just like what happened in Nazi Germany, is that evil, if, it is, if evil is not dealt with, and we're running out of time, if evil is not dealt with, it will continue to rise. And what history tells us is that when evil rises, it enters into an acceleration phase which, which makes way for a strong man or a dictator like Adolf Hitler or a communist dictator. It makes way for a dictator, a dictator that is often deeply involved in the occult and Satanism, whether it's public knowledge or not. Many of the communist leaders in Russia were secretly Satanists, like Karl Marx, the, the, the founder of communism. So what, it, what inevitably happens is there an ex, there's an explosion of satanic power in a society and the raising up of a demon-possessed dictator. All of uh, Hitler's uh, major generals believed he was demon-possessed. And so when you allow a demon-possessed man to have absolute power in any nation like America or Germany or wherever, then very quickly all hell will break loose. And I don't need to, I'm not here to just fearmonger. I could bullet point for you what, what happens, but all you really need to do is look at what happened in communist China, look at what happened in Nazi Germany, look at, look at what happened in communist Russia. Now, in our time, <clears throat> we have globalism. The Nazis are still around. They're connected to the Great Reset. We have computers, and we have the Great Reset. The Great Reset is despite the fact that they claim to be purely scientific, they are in reality a satanic-slash-occult dictatorship on a global scale. And they are in the process right now of conquering America and the world globally through the pretense and the lies and the spiritual deception of things like the Great Reset, artificial intelligence, making outrageous lying promises to gullible people, that they're going to bring about paradise on earth, which is a complete lie. And they're in the takeover phase. There's legislation in, in the American government right now that is proceeding because both parties have been co-opted. Both the Democrats and the Republicans have been co-opted. They're both betraying you. 
They are both being paid for by the Great Reset trillionaires. They have sold you down the river. And there's legislation that the media, the media has not been on your side for a long time. The media is totally dominated and controlled by the trillionaires in the Great Reset. And they have all kinds of semi-secret legislation. In other words, it's actually there. You can read it for yourself. In fact, I quote a lot of their evil legislation in my books. But it's semi-secret because most people don't have the time or whatever to read what they have proposed for you and me. And within, by the end of 2014, there will be no turning back. We are basically at the window where the door is shutting to reverse the direction that we're in. You understand that, right? You're an adult. So there should be no excuses and no complaining when what you were warned was going to happen happens. By the end of 2014, unless there are significant changes, we will be on an irreversible course of the establishment of the most wicked, satanic, and evil planetary dictatorship the world has ever known. That will bring us to the time zone of the rise of the biblical Antichrist and the time zone of the rise of the biblical Antichrist. When you hear about the vaccine passport and you hear about these technologies which, in which they plan to, to make it mandatory for you to receive a vaccine, which, is, which contains nanobot microscopic technology that, that is activated externally and through, a, and through wireless technology known as 5G. So they intend to pass a law to make it mandatory. You can't travel, you can't get a plane, you can't get a job, you can't go from one state to another, you can't do just about anything unless you have an, inject, an injected vaccine passport, which is microscopic computer technology that is, is forced into your bloodstream. This vaccine passport, however it, it is rolled out, we, all, we know enough about it to know what it's going to do. We know enough about it to know that they have the technology to do it. And I'm telling you, from everything I've read, and I've been studying the Mark of the Beast technology for 40 years, go back to my books that, that expose it like, like the day the dollar died, a, an easy read that will expose everything from the Federal Reserve to the uh, uh, microscope, the, 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 the nanochips. Um, go read my book on the microchip implant available at a discount at paulmcguire.us and my other books like Prophecy of the Future of America, Volume 1 2, Power from High, The Greatest Battle, Are You Ready? I've been talking about the microchip implant on, on the History Channel. I, I was reported for the Discovery Channel. I don't know where they aired that, by the way. If you know where they aired that, let me know. And I've been talking about the microchip implant for longer and some of you have been alive. The vaccine passport is a somewhat stealth maneuver in what I believe will be the arrival, the installation, and the activation of an electronic wireless nanobot 
integrated with your integrated and creating within you hybrid genetically modified DNA embedded within you on a microscopic level, the vaccine passport will be essentially in its end game form as it develops, as it takes shape. All the clues are there. All the evidence is there. It's put together the puzzle pieces. Where the vaccine passport is going is the mark of the beast, the rise and takeover of Antichrist, the mark of the beast 666, the false prophet, the nanobot mark of the beast technology, which is wireless. You're connected to a global economic system. You can't buy. Already it's designed so that you cannot buy or sell without receiving the vaccine passport, which the Bible describes as the mark of the beast, 666. And then you have a false prophet that the world worships as God. You have the Antichrist who performs counterfeit signs and wonders that causes the world to worship the Antichrist as God. The Antichrist supervises and rules over the global economic system and the one world religion, and the false prophet presides over the global government. And everything that's happening with the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, all of this is coming together in an accelerated time so that before you know it, That time will be here, and you know what time I'm talking about. I'm doing everything I can to warn, educate, and inform people of the facts based on a biblical worldview and based on a very, very intensive study of science, medicine, technology, computer technology, artificial intelligence, uh, economics, globalist institutions, the history of globalism. I could go on and on and on. The time that is available for me to have, for me to be able to communicate this kind of message with this level of truth, the clock is ticking on it. There are people who want to shut people like me down and other voices of truth down. Once that's over, once that happens, it's over. It's, It's it. Game over. Game over. Do you understand that? And yet, you have so many Christians who absolutely and tenaciously and ferociously refuse to lift their heads up and look at reality and to actually do what God created them to do before the foundation of the world, which is to occupy until Christ comes, to proclaim biblical truth, to take a stand against darkness. And in fact, we are being called to do this. And this is what we're being called to do. And you're going to hear me use this expression a lot because I'm tired of, I'm tired of, you know, playing Christian gibberish, counterfeit spirituality. I believe with all my heart, and I believe that you believe with all your heart that this is what God is calling us to do. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to keep telling you until it resonates in every molecule of your body, soul, and spirit, until it resonates like a giant symphony being played in the kingdom of heaven, whose major chorus should be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our job, and it's now or never, because tomorrow is not promised to us, our job 
hear me well, is to hold back the night. This is Paul McGuire. Visit paulmcguire.us.